I'd love for you to uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy 32, if you have a Bible there close by, the fifth book of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32. And we're going to actually look at some verses in that chapter and look at some verses in the chapters preceding it. I'm glad that we get to be here today. We get to study together and worship together and sing and pray and commune and give and just be a part of this assembly with God's people here at this, this place. We, as I mentioned earlier, we welcome all of you. Hope that today's a blessing to you in a lot of different ways as we get to uh, be in this assembly together. Good to see our Peru group back. I think all of them made it home safely this weekend. I've heard good things about their work in Peru over the last week or so. So we look forward to hearing more about that in the coming days. But thankful that God answered our prayers and brought you guys back home safely. We appreciate the good work that you did. There was a, a survey done. It was on the front page of the USA Today back in 2010, October 7th, 2010. So eight and a half years or so ago. The title of it is, How America Sees God. How America Sees God. I like that title. It's not telling us who God is necessarily, what his nature is, but rather it's just simply saying that this is how America perceives God, how Americans think of God. The article is based on a study, and I, sometimes I think things like this are they're interesting, sometimes they're helpful. It was based on a study done by some researchers at Baylor University in Texas. And they, the, the beginning of the article, well, the title of the, title of the book uh, that was published as a result of this research is called America's Four Gods, What We Say About God and What This Says About Us. So that's kind of intriguing, you think? America's Four Gods. The article says at the beginning, it says, um, If you pray to God, to whom or what are you praying? When you sing, God bless America, whose blessing are you seeking? Is God by our side or beyond the stars? Is he wrathful or forgiving? Is he judging us every moment, someday, <laughs> or never? These uh, sociologists identified four views of God, as you might expect from the title of the book. And they, they suggested in this book and this research that these four views of God are represented fairly equally by Americans. So basically, a quarter of Americans hold to each of these four views. They start out by saying that about 5% of Americans are atheists or agnostics, leaving about 95% of us who have some sort of belief in God. Of that 95%, then it breaks down roughly according to the four views of God, according to the researchers. Now listen to this. It's kind of interesting. The study says that 24% of Americans believe in a distant God who, quote, booted up the universe and then left humanity alone, end quote. In this view, basically, life is just you, you know. Your life is what you make it. Now, God, you've probably heard of deism. This is, this is kind of a deistic kind of point of view. Basically, God created it, and he just set it free. You know, he doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. So 24% of Americans believe in that. The article quotes a rabbi who identifies with this view. And in that, in that quotation, they say, he said, There is no one who can fix things if I mess them up, end quote. What do you think about that? 
No one who can fix things if I mess them up. Now, obviously, that's not a very Christian view, is it? I mean, I don't think most of us hold to that kind of a view of God, that, that he's just out there, he's not really doing anything at all, and there's nobody who's going to fix things, nobody who has fixed them or will fix them. So it's not a very Christian view. Here's the second view. They say that this view is that God is disengaged from this world, but that he will make things right in the world to come. So this is a second view. This is the view of God that Karl Marx dismissed. As when he called it, you've heard the phrase before, the opium of the masses or the opiate of the people. That this, Marx called it the pie in the sky when you die, that kind of thing. That, that God created the world and God's going to do something at some point, but right now we're just trying to, you know, kind of muddle through and get to, get to heaven. You know, it's just, everything's about that. So God did something back then. He's going to do something at some point then, but right in the middle of it, you know, it is what it is. So that's the second view. 21% of Americans, by the way. So 24% hold the first one, this deism. 21% hold that one at least eight and a half years ago. The third and fourth views of God in this article are, are particularly interesting to us, I think. Here's the third view. It says that 28% of Americans think that God is, quote, engaged in history and meeting out punishment to those who do not follow him, end quote. 28% of Americans. So let me read that again. He's engaged in history and he's meeting out punishment to those who do not follow him. Here's the last one. 22% hold to this fourth view. They believe in a benevolent God who is, quote, a force for good who cares for all people, weeps at all conflicts, and will comfort all, end quote. So 28% of Americans believe in a God who punishes. 22% of Americans believe in a God who loves. Uh, what was it? 24% believe in this distant God who set things in motion and disengaged. 22% believe that God created it and he's going to do something at some point. And so it's roughly a quarter. He set things in motion. He set things in motion and he will do something one day. Then the third one is that he, he's, he's actively involved, especially in meeting out punishment. And then the fourth one is that, that he's, he's doing good stuff. You know, Four, four views. <clears throat> I'm sure you've got thoughts about what, you know, what, what, how, kind of your perspective on those views. But I think it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, I'd love to know what's going on in your mind. Here's, here's what's going on in mine. I don't know if it's a fault of the research. I don't know what kind of questions they ask. I don't know how they came up with the four views. But I've got a little bit of an issue with the last two. Because I think that it's not an either-or kind of thing, you know? I, I, don't, I don't think that you, that, you can, that you can say that we've got to pick one of the four, right? I think the researchers made some sort of an error when they said you've got to be in one camp or the other. Suppose that the researchers had gone back to, to, to the great man Moses, the great lawgiver Moses, and they had said, Moses, do you believe that God meets out punishment today? What do you think Moses' answer would have been? You've been reading Deuteronomy? Some of you have. Think God meets out punishment? You've been, if you've been reading with us, you've read Exodus, you've read Leviticus, you've read Numbers, and now you're 
You're uh, making your way through Deuteronomy. But what would Moses' answer have been to that? Absolutely he's meeting out punishment. Have you seen some of the stuff he's done? Remember when the people were grumbling and murmuring and complaining? He sent the snakes. Remember that? <coughs> Remember what he did in Egypt? Remember those ten plagues in the book of Exodus? Remember that? Absolutely. And they would say, man, Moses, when you'd say that, because you're Old Testament. You're Old Testament. You're pretty, you're fire and brimstone kind of guy, Moses. And um, so we expected that. But, but, but what if they said, what if, what if they said, Moses, we know since, since that's where you are, since that's what you think about God, we know that you're not in the fourth camp because you can't be in both camps. You've got to be in the meeting punishment out camp or you've got to be in the he's giving out blessings camp. But what if they had said, Moses, do you believe that God is a God who blesses? What do you think Moses' answer would have been? Have you been reading Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? Moses would have said, absolutely, he is a God who gives blessings. He rescued us from Egypt. He, sent, he, he gave us that, that, that serpent of brass on a, on a pole that we could look at and escape punishment. He is, he's protected us all these years. He's guided us. He's taken care of us. God is a God who blesses. I think sometimes, like that survey would indicate, we get, we get caught up in these categories and we try to put God in these little boxes. He's in box number three. He's a God who punishes. Or he's a God who blesses, so he's in box number four. Or he's, he's a God who doesn't do much of anything. He's in box number two, but he will do something. Or he's a God who doesn't do anything at all and never will. He's in box number one. The problem with that is it's not quite so simple, isn't it? I appreciate uh, Joel's comments a few minutes ago prior to communion and his prayer that reflected this kind of this kind of thing I, I don't know that we can we can fully grasp this you know if we can our finite minds are capable this side of eternity of figuring out maybe not even in eternity we will we won't have this you know infinite ability to understand who God is and all of his aspects and his nature but it is fascinating and, and I wanted to present this to you today I wanted to share this with you today in case, and I know some of you are, many of you are, reading through Deuteronomy, reading through the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books, man, there's all sorts of stuff. You've got God punishing and God blessing, and how do we figure out who God is? What's he going to do? Is he good or is he bad? Is he loving or is he, is he God of wrath? You know, how do you, how do you wrestle with that view of God? You know, what do you do with this? Well, I think it's a little bit difficult for us to do. I think there's tension here. But wouldn't you expect that for us in our, our finite nature, for our limited understanding, for us in our humanity, don't you think there would be tension when we presume to try to grasp an infinite God, when we try to, with our feeble little minds, trying to, trying to wrap them around an infinite holy God, don't you think there's going to be tension there? There's going to be some areas where we're going to be grasping and trying to figure this out. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? I know, thank you enough. I've said this before, and I think you agree with this. We don't want a God we can understand fully because that God would not be God. We don't want a God who we can put in a box and say he can and cannot do these things. We don't want that kind of God because that's not really God. That's like us. We want a God who is infinite and who is other and is wholly different from us and is capable of things we can't even understand. So when we read some of these texts in the Old Testament, I just want to challenge us to, 
to, to grasp and to reach and to stretch ourselves. But at the end of it, we take the God who is presented to us, the God who is. And in fact, I want us to spend a few minutes walking through some of these chapters preceding Deuteronomy 32. We'll end up finishing up in Deuteronomy 32 in a minute. But I want to I talk about how this picture of God is presented in these chapters. I think you get to these, if you're on pace with us in reading the Bible this year, I think you'll get to chapters 27 and 28 on Thursday, later this week. And, and what's going to happen when you read this, I want you to focus on this when you get here. I want you to think back to this. But um, you, you come to this place. Now, Deuteronomy is a book where Moses is, is, uh, is preaching to the people, gives a couple of long sermons to them. And basically, he's recapping the law. He's telling them about what God has done and what God expects of them. Because this is a new generation. Their parents had died in the wilderness, and these kids have grown up in the wilderness, and now they've reached adulthood, and Moses said... Folks, gather around. I want to preach a couple sermons to you. That's what Deuteronomy is. So he's preaching to them. <clears throat> and he gives some, some commands from God about what's going to happen. Now, one of the things that's going to happen, this is in 27 and 28. Is this is interesting, okay? He says, there are these two mountains here, okay? They're Ebal and Gerizim, all right? Ebal and Gerizim. Now, what they are... What we're going to do with these mountains is we're going, to send, <coughs> we're going to send representatives up on each of these mountains, okay? So we're going to send representatives from six tribes up on Mount Ebal, and we're going to send representatives of the other six tribes up on Gerizim, okay? And then we're going to walk in front of them. And so when we walk in front of these mountains, these representatives are going to be yelling things, and so here we are. The people are walking in front of Mount Ebal. And the people up there on Ebal, these, these representatives of the six tribes, are going to be talking about things. And so we're going to be, uh, we're going to be walking in front of, let's, let's talk about Gerizim for a minute. This is in chapter 28, verse 1. You can listen, you can turn there and follow along with me. But listen to this. This is what they're going to be saying, okay? So they're walking before these mountains, walking before Gerizim. And these six representatives are saying, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord's going to cause your enemies to flee before you, and he goes on. And thus, they're walking in front of Gerritseem, and these six representatives up there are yelling down these blessings. Imagine what that would have been like. You're walking there and you hear all oh, these blessings just falling down on you. Man, this is great. This is great. If we obey, this is what God is going to do. Everything is going to be great. We'll have enough food to eat. Our enemies will run before us. And it's going to, we'll have kids. You know, it'll be a blessing. It'll be, it'll be awesome. Guarantee. <clears throat> and then they have to walk in front of Mount Ebal. You probably guess it by now, right? What do you think is going to happen from Ebal? Let me read you a couple. Skip down later in Deuteronomy 28. 
Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and the statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you, go in, when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. Which one would you rather walk in front of? I'd rather hang out around Garrett C, personally. <clears throat> because I like to hear positive stuff, right? But let me, let me ask you something. <clears throat> you think you need to walk in front of Ebal sometimes? Do you think you need to walk under both mountains? Or do you just need to walk under one of the mountains? What if you spend all of your time at the base of Garrett C? What kind of view do you think you'd have of God if you spent all your time at the feet, at the base of this mountain, Gerizim? You hear all these blessings, all these blessings just falling, falling down on you. What if you spent all your time at the base of Mount Gerizim? I think you'd have a view of God that would be, would be beautiful. It, it would be beautiful. It would be encouraging. It would be a blessing, right? But it would be incomplete. What if you spent all your time at the feet of Mount Ebal? Man, I think God was in a bad mood. I think God was kind of hateful, kind of, a, kind of a God of wrath. You know, I don't really like to think of God like that um, because, man, that makes me feel bad, you know. What kind of, would, it, would it be an accurate view of God to say at the, at the base of Mount Ebal that God is a God of judgment and a God who expects obedience? Would, would that be an accurate view of God? Yeah, but it would be incomplete, wouldn't it? I wonder if maybe we need to spend a little bit of time at the bases of both mountains. In uh, turnover, if you're, if you're there in Deuteronomy with me, uh, Turn over a couple of chapters to chapter 32. And we're going to finish up here. And, and this, is, this is a song. All right? This is pretty cool. Because in chapter 31, they've, they've done the Ebal Gerizim thing. <coughs> and uh, at the end of chapter 31, God said, Moses, I want you to write a song. I'm going to tell you the song. <clears throat> you just write it down. Teach it to the people. And so uh, chapter 32 is the song that God taught Moses to teach the people. It's a song. And in that song, we have beautifully, beautifully reflected in the lyrics the kindness and severity of God. That text from Romans 11 that Bob read for us at the beginning of worship this morning. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Behold that God is a God of Mount Gerizim, and He's also a God of Mount Ebal. Uh, God, God is a God who is a God who meets out blessings and curses. God is a God who gives us. Wonderful things, and he's God who also hands out judgments at times. And in, in this song, this is interesting, in the song you see these elements represented so, so very well. Deuteronomy 32 tells us about the severity of God. Let me walk through it. We're not going to read it all. Uh, I hope you'll read it on Thursday or Friday this week when you get to it and you're reading but I want to point out something before we get to that point. Just some things to look for when you get there. Look in, look in chapter 32 and verse 10, for example. 
He talks about the fact that he says, you have received these blessings. Verse 10, he found him, that is Israel. He found Israel in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. Verse, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. This is what God has done for you. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its Pinions. Skip down to verse 13. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. So these, God has blessed you. You know, God has done all these great things for you, rescued you from Egypt, all this stuff. He's been good to you. Look at verse 15. This is one, all right? You, won't, you probably won't get this. probably won't get this your first reading because... We read through and we don't really understand some metaphorical kind of language. But look at verse 15. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. What in the world? What's he talking about? Jeshurun. Who in the world is Jeshurun? Jeshurun. I don't know who Jeshurun is. Is that a person? Jeshurun. You may have a footnote that tells you this. Some, some Bibles do. If you've got a study Bible, you probably got a footnote beside Jeshurun that tells you something about it. But basically the word Jeshurun is a word that means the upright one, the one of righteousness. And it is a reference. You can do a search on it and you'll find it used in other places. It's a reference to Israel as upright. So the upright Israel. He's talking about them, okay? And he's talking about them. This is, this is the interesting thing. He's talking about Israel at their finest. They're upright but then he uses this language. What does this mean? Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Grew fat? That's kind of rude, isn't it? What's he saying here? Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. The thing is, he's talking about, he's talking about like a mule, like a cow, some sort of a beast of burden perhaps, an animal that after a time grew fat and like a mule or a donkey kicked its master. So that's the idea of like a mule who served his master all these years, but after a while he gets fat and he gets stubborn and rebellious and he strikes out at his master. And so Jeshurun, upright Israel, Israel did well, but then after a while the prosperity came and Jeshurun, like an old stubborn mule, kicked out at God, its master. That's the language here. And so in it, he's talking about all that God has done for you, but you, you're going to get fat. <laughs> you're going to get fat, and you're going to kick. You, you kind of get the idea from the last part of verse 15. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. He grew fat and kicked. Now, Maybe pause here. We've been talking about a lot of this, this stuff, not a whole lot about you know, what this means to you and me, but this probably applies to most of us here. <clears throat> In the sense that haven't most of us kicked out at God? Some of you may be kicking at God even this morning. After all, is, all God has done for you, all the blessings that he's poured out on you and on me and on us, and perhaps sometimes we are like Jeshurun. We are upright and we, we get proud of ourselves and we think, you know what, I, am, I, don't, I don't really want God putting all these restrictions on me. We kick out at him. 
You see this kind of language, if you're kicking out at God this morning, it's not going to turn out well. And then the text here, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, in verse 16, with abominations, they provoked him to anger. He's talking some about Israel's history, but he's also prophesying a little bit about the future. Look down at verse 19, the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. This is the judgment you deserve. Verse 20, he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Verse 21, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Verse 23, I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. This is the severity of God. When we kick at God, when we rebel against God, God is not a God who sits back and allows His creation to spurn His blessings, to treat Him as if He were nothing. When we kick out at God, it brings about God's definite and clear judgment. I honestly don't know any other way to read the Bible. I know we can read it selectively. We can pick and choose. We can spend all of our time at the base of Mount Gerizim. But if we do that, we're creating a God of our own liking, not the God who is. See, it's very clear here. And this is not just an Old Testament thing. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Paul didn't see some sort of discrepancy and say, well, you know, we got the severe God in the Old Testament, but thank God, now we have the kind God. Doesn't do it. It just doesn't do it. So he talks about this judgment. But of course you know that God is a God not only of judgment, right? But he's a God of judgment and a God of blessing. A God who meets out overwhelming blessings for his people. And so you go on in, in, uh, in chapter 32. Skip down a few verses to, you know, you'll read it later this week. But let me just pick out a couple. Verse 29. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. See, what it's talking about there in verses 29 and following is that this is what God is going to do to your enemies. God is not a God who stands back and allows the enemies of his people to hurt them indefinitely. God is a God who steps in and he will will punish those people who are evil, who do evil things to God's people. So he's talking about ultimately God is going to be a God of blessing to you. He doesn't want to judge you, but rather he will judge those who persist in rebellion against him, your enemies. He will step in. God is a God who acts in judgment. Look at verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining Bond are free. In other words, when we submit ourselves to God, when we recognize we are dependent on Him, we are humbly serving the God of the universe. God is a God who blesses. He reacts one way to obstinance and pride, and He reacts an entirely different way to humility and submission. See, these this images that, that Moses is presenting here for us, in, in verse 43, the very... Uh, end of the song, verse 43. Read this with me. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, O gods, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. I like the NIV a little bit better here. Let me read it to you. 
Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and his people. The way that Deuteronomy 32 goes is it goes from God's severity to God's blessing. And I am so thankful that the God we serve is not only the God of Mount Ebal, but he's a God of Mount Gerizim. When we took communion a few minutes ago, I hope you were thinking about something like this. The answer, you know, to so many of our questions is the cross, as we've talked about before. I hope you don't get tired of hearing this point, because I think this is the gospel in a nutshell. I believe this is the, I believe this is the gospel, because at the cross, so many of our questions are answered, right? At the cross, do you see judgment or mercy? Don't answer that. Or, or if you answer it, don't answer it one or the other. At the cross, if you could go back there to, to Calvary 2,000 years ago and you walk outside of the city of Jerusalem and you go to Mount Calvary, you go to that place of the cross, Golgotha, you, you, you go there and you see Jesus hanging there and he's bleeding from all parts of his body and he's having a hard time breathing and you, you see the eclipse and you feel the earthquake beneath you. Do you see there judgment or mercy? The answer is, you see both at Calvary, don't you? You see judgment as God poured out His wrath. This is what Revelation talks about, God's wrath being poured out without mixture. It was poured out on Jesus there at the cross. God's wrath was poured out on Him as if all the sins of the world had been committed by Jesus, who committed no sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth. And yet there you see the wrath of God poured out on God. God's wrath on God in his innocence. Jesus took upon him the punishment of our own sins. So you see there perhaps, not perhaps, you see there more clearly the wrath of God displayed than in any other point in history. You see God's judgment, right? That is God's judgment. That's why there was the eclipse. That's why there was the, 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 the earthquake. That's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it was the wrath of God. It was the judgment of God. But do you also see mercy at the cross? I hope your answer to that is a resounding yes. Absolutely, and thank God. We see there not only judgment, we see mercy. Because it was Jesus who hung there. It was Jesus who took upon him the consequences of human sin. <clears throat> and so that you and I do not have to go to the cross. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God, a God of severity. God is a God of judgment. Sin has been punished. It will be punished. God is not a God who simply dismisses sin. Who simply says, I'm just going to look the other way. He did not look the other way. He did not look the other way as far as human sin is concerned. But rather Jesus took it upon himself. But in that very moment, 
he, his was the greatest display of mercy that we've ever seen. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so he died so that we wouldn't have to. Is God a God of kindness? Yes. Is God a God of severity? Yes. But you and I can relate to God in different ways. And I think that's what Ebal and Gerritzim, that's what the cross, that's what the Bible stories tell us, is that we can choose to, choose to relate to God as those who, to use the Deuteronomy language, who grow fat and kick against God. We can do that. Or we can choose to relate to Him in submission. God gives us that choice. And so for us today, the message is, is, is simple, really, isn't it? it it's simple. Are we relating to him out of obedience or out of disobedience? Out of submission or out of rebellion? Are, are, are we coming to God this morning? Are we coming to God with our lives and saying to him, Lord, I want you to be my God. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. And, and I, I'm going to turn my life over to you completely. And I want you to be my God uh, for the rest of my life. I, I just want to do your will. Or are, are we relating to God as people who want to do it our own way? Lord, I want some of you, but not all of you. Because all of you makes me uncomfortable. <clears throat> I can handle some of you. Not all of you. I think that's the, that's the question for most of us. Because <clears throat> you're here because you want some of God. But maybe we don't want all of him. Because all of God will take us sometimes to places that are difficult to go. But God will bless. Isn't that the message? He will make atonement for the land and for the people. And so the trajectory of Deuteronomy 32 is toward the cross and toward the hope of heaven and toward blessings that are found only in Christ. If you want those blessings, then if you haven't submitted your life to him, we, we urge you to do it today, to, to turn your life over to him and say, I want to be yours, Lord. I'm gonna, I want all of you. I want all of you. I want Ebal and Gares. I, I, want, I, want, I want you as you are. I want you to be the God that you are. And you relate to him in the terms of the cross, and that is... You fall at the feet of the cross and you say, thank, thank you, God, for doing that for me. And you give your life to him. You, you submit to him in baptism and he washes all of your sins away by the blood of the cross. And God is a God who blesses and blesses and blesses and blesses. You can come to him today in faith and obedience. Maybe you need to come back to him today because your life, quite honestly, your life just lately has not been what it ought to have been. And, and it's been characterized by kicking against God, kicking against his plan, his will for you, kicking against his restrictions and, and, and parameters that he set for a fulfilled life in Christ. And, and you want to come back to him today and say, Lord, I want, I want to be yours. I want all of you to be, to be mine. If you need to come forward, we, we beg you to come now. Let's stand. Let's sing.